We are here with Jeffrey Howard. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming in. Of course. Thank you for having me. I was uh, I was thinking a little bit about Chicago before the episode because I know mm-hmm. that you're you're off to University of Chicago next year. Yes. And I'd love just to hear, a, I've got a poem called Chicago that I'll read in a second by Carl Sandburg, um, which I think you'll like. I don't know if we read it last year or not, but um, I'd love to hear just about your interest in the University of Chicago and kind of what the whole process was like applying to that school, visiting the school, um, and just getting familiar with the city of Chicago and, and the university. Mm-hmm. As for the city, uh, the thing that I really like about Chicago as a city is that um, you can think of L.A. and New York. People go there because they want to be a star and they want to go make a million dollars and be famous. And I think that Chicago is interesting because um, it feels like the, the Chicago dream is to go and work a normal middle class job and to like own a normal business. And it feels like it's a city full of real people more than all these like strange dreamers in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. So mm-hmm. as a city, I think that's something that's really attractive to it, along with the fact like all the amazing culture that comes out of there with the jazz music and um, famous theater acts. Um, and then also just the amazing political history that goes on there with the, the political machine, the democratic party. There's, there's so, I think it's the most interesting uh, city in the world. So as a city, I'm really excited to be there. Had you been there before you went out to maybe look at university of Chicago? Yeah. So I went there, I think once when I was a lot younger, um, in freshman year, my older brother, um, uh, goes to Chicago. He's graduating this year. And I like, took a uh, spring break trip and like stayed for a week there at the university. I got some sense of the place there, but that was also the the spring break where COVID hit. Mm. So it was cut off in a weird way. And you know, there were moments where we didn't know if we were actually gonna get back to Baltimore. Cause if you remember during COVID, there was like, oh, are they gonna cut down interstate travel? Are they gonna cut down airplanes? So oh, yeah. it was sort of stressed out in some other ways. So I didn't get like a really good chance to experience the university. Was and he virtual or was he actually going to class every day? If you remember, like the the initial COVID thing was, they like sent out some materials because they thought might something might happen before, but we didn't really understand like how ridiculous it would be mm-hmm. before the spring break. And by the time we came back, we weren't. I don't think we came back that year at all. We went straight to virtual. So for him, it was like he got off on break and they just never went back to the school. He did another quarter of a of virtual learning and then and then graduated. He didn't graduate. He took a gap year there. Oh. And then he, from there, he went to his junior year. Now he's graduating this year. Okay, gotcha. So gotcha. I'm, I'm missing him by one year, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah that's a bummer. Um, so how about the school? How about the university? I didn't really know much about University of Chicago. I was reading on Wikipedia actually, and I was thinking mm-hmm. to myself, Wikipedia, it gets a bad rap, but there's so much information on there that is useful all in one place. Wikipedia is my number one favorite website ever. I think that, I think that. There's a very good reason not to cite it in your academic research and or like when you're writing a paper for school and they try to emphasize that. But I think that's done a lot of harm in making people think that Wikipedia is a bad source to go to. It's a wonderful place to go for information. That's the first place I go whenever I want to learn anything. And you can always jump on other things. Right. Other you could things. spend all day on, on that thing, just clicking the links. and. Yeah, there's there's evidence that Wikipedia already is or at least is growing to be the most credible like source of, of information ever because sure there's less um reviewing as like print uh print resources but event more and more that is being like outweighed by the the recency factor you know if someone dies tomorrow that's not going to be in a in an encyclopedia but it will be on wikipedia yeah so more and more wikipedia is becoming like the best place for information 
in the world, I think. It used to be, I think this is why it got a bad rap, because you used to be able to go in and make edits. It was owned by the public pretty much. So you, anybody mm-hmm. who's a user of it could go in and change something, and there'd be mm-hmm. some random facts that aren't accurate. But I think they probably cracked down on that in some ways. I don't know. It's um, So actually, I don't know if you remember, but last year, mm-hmm. funny enough, a UChicago alum, who was, uh, a Gilman alum, who was actually at UChicago, I think now, came back and his whole like passion was Wikipedia and he explained about the stuff. It's still fully um, publicly owned and like edited by the people, but they have really robust uh, bots that hmm. go around on all the websites, especially the important ones, and make sure that no edit is like taken too quickly. If someone goes in and tries to change a ton of stuff, that will immediately switch back. There's a lot of reviewing that happens. Um, hmm. I think you're right. Maybe at the beginning it was just less attention on the site so people could get away with more stuff, but especially on things that are reasonably important, it's going to be right almost all the time. Or at least it will have the consensus opinion. Maybe less technologically advanced now. It's just the the AI, the bots, they, they take mm-hmm. care of everything. You don't need to hire somebody to scan yeah. all the information to make changes. But they also have more, peop- more money to hire people as well. So yeah. they, there's a lot of oversight on Wikipedia. But um, there's always every... I don't know, every spring or every month there's a campaign for donations for, for Wikipedia because mm-hmm. it needs people to keep funding it so that it yeah. it stays alive. I've done that once or twice. It's worth <laughs> I, it. Like, it it's, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a it's one of the most worthy things you can that I, I think I would want to you know, help. I always wonder, too, about how people make it onto Wikipedia. You know, like <laughs> you can... I don't know. You know someone is really legit and, and a professional when their name is It's almost like the verified yeah. on Twitter or mm-hmm. Instagram. It's like this person, okay, it's got a lot of clout or followers mm-hmm. if they are listed on Wikipedia. That's one thing that I don't know if it's credible or not because talking about the extreme um, uh, oversight for, for checking for false information, I don't know if they would like take it off if I put on a Jeffrey Howard Wikipedia. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't know if they would care to go. They might have like citation needed everywhere or like special things that say this has not been vetted, but I don't know if they would take that off. So maybe that's worth thinking oh, about. Oh, yeah. I wonder if you could do that. Make <laughs> yeah. your own Wikipedia page. I'll, I'll get off this right now and make a Path to Fall <laughs> podcast Wikipedia page. Oh, Start yeah. documenting everything that happens. That'd be great. Of um, so um, let's talk about the school, Chicago. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, what attracted you to it in the first place? So, well, the first thing that attracted me to it was just that my brother was there. So you start thinking about it, and, and a lot of my thoughts about colleges come through uh, through him and how he would talk about it. And what what I came to find is that it feels like s- so many people in Chicago are like my brother and like me, who are just very very curious for for the sake of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed like it, it's a prestigious school, and people will go out there and make a lot of money a lot of time. But it feels like that's not at all the focus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is evidenced by the fact they don't have a, an engineering school, for instance. Um, and I love STEM, but uh, I think that's because they really care to focus on like the theoretical nature of it and getting a really good foundational education. Is it liberal arts? Yeah, it's sort of liberal arts. I I don't know if it's technically liberal arts because I think there are other classifications um, to call it, like a liberal arts school, quote unquote. But uh, they have a core curriculum. Another thing that, I'm re- that was really important to me, where um, they make sure you get a really strong education in the sciences, mathematics, uh, social studies, humanities. Um, they make sh- that's like a lot of your education. There is the stuff that you have to take. I was reading about the core curriculum a little bit, and I know that back in the day, I don't know what decade, but it had like 15 to 18 classes on that core mm-hmm. curriculum list, and. 
one university professor decided to cut it down to 12. I think there may be 12 classes that you need to take now. 18. And, oh, it's 18. I believe so. Well, it depends on whether or not you qualify to uh, skip some language classes, but I did not do great on the AP Lyme exam, so I'll be taking 18, 18 uh, okay. core classes there. But I read that when this university professor decided to cut it down, it was a big deal because that's such a central component to the mm-hmm. university is the core curriculum and the well-roundedness yeah. ra- of the classes. Yeah, and I think that that's something that a lot of people, you know, if, if you're considering the school, should really grapple with is whether you actually want to go deal with that. Um, if you're someone who wants to go into, you know, mathematics, that's all you really care about, it might not be worth going to a place where it will make you take nine classes and... Uh, other subjects, but for me, I do care about getting like that full sort of liberal arts feeling of being very well rounded, and also having all my students around me be be well rounded in the same way. And that's something I'm really excited for. That like intellectual community that is made for when everybody has to take um, these core classes. Now, why do you think that's so important to you? Because I know you love math. I know you're mm-hmm. in advanced math classes here at Gilman, and I think from our conversations before that you've told me that you wanted to pursue math. In the mm-hmm. future, why is the core curriculum and the diversity of the courses so important to you? Well, because I think that um, in America, a lot of college is seen as like a preparation for a jobs program, sort of. And that's why you go to college. And I think that for a lot of people, that is a smart way of thinking about it if you're not privileged. But I think that for most Gilman students, you're sort of privileged enough to have a more holistic understanding of the college process and, um, and the, the real value of education. Um, I think that all of that's important for like a real value of education. That you need to be able to read, you need to be able to write really well. I think you need to be understanding on a uh, understand things on a scientific and mathematical level, have a well-rounded understanding of languages, other languages. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's important for like, you know, some, you know, uh, hard to pin down top like aspect of your soul, you know, mm-hmm. and some something like that. And uh, that's really important for me. And then even just practically. Uh, if I want to go into, if you want to go into STEM in any way, you need to be able to communicate your ideas. There's not, a, I don't think there's a single job on the planet where you can just do your little math or physics problems all day and then get paid for it. You have to be able to communicate that to someone else, and I think that's best taught through the through the humanities and through writing and understanding, um, mm-hmm. you know, texts. And I think that's the same way around. Uh, you read uh, interpretive English papers and persuasive papers where they make arguments, and that has like a logical backing to it. That's, that I, I think is best understood through mathematics, where you can say whether it's uh, you know objectively correct or objectively wrong uh, mathematically, and then you can sort of build these more interpretive, difficult humanities things on top of that. Same with science, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If I do a, a couple trials in a physics lab, I can say this the data does support this conclusion or it does not. And then when I move to uh, an English class, that's a harder thing to say, but I still have that basic understanding of how evidence is supposed to help your argument. I think that I think that getting a well-rounded education is extremely important for for anybody who wants to just I think it's important for anyone who wants to go on to do further things in their life in terms of jobs but I think it's good for just being like a a well put together person in society yeah I love that I love that the value of the liberal arts degree mm-hmm. um, so I was watching a couple of videos of Chicago and just getting mm-hmm. a sense of what it looked like because I'd never seen it before and Apart from my Wikipedia plunge, yeah. I watched a few videos on YouTube of the campus and the architecture is be- beautiful. I mean, it's yeah, stunning it's, there. It's beautiful. And it's, it feels like you're walking around a church everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's like a f- uh, famous characterization of the economics department there, which is you know their most famous department for multiple reasons and how it's like 
a church to the free market because partially because of how they uh you know they structure their academics and their their research but also because it looks like a cathedral when you walk into that department yeah and i guess over the winter break and it's it's stunning to walk around the library the harper library i think it was it's called is beautiful mm-hmm. um they have uh the mansueto library is like a weird glass egg yeah you can sit in and when it snows you can like see the snow falling off the side just no, a beautiful place to i paint. thought it was in the center city of chicago but it's a little bit removed. No, it's in Hyde Park near the south side. Okay. I think that's something that I'll, uh, I'm very privileged to never really understand what it's like to live in a, in like an environment that isn't beautiful, I think, because yeah. I grew around around this area. Gilman is a stunning campus. Yeah. Um, walking around all these trees, all this greenery everywhere, and then I'm going to go over there. It's also stunning. So yeah. Yeah. Something that I don't think I'll ever have to deal with is like a place that's just not beautiful. And I think that that's something that we all take for granted at Gilman, for sure. Yeah, that's very true. Um, do you live pretty close by? Did you grow up kind of in Roland Park area, or where uh, did you, you grow up? Last seven years, I've lived in the Roland Park area. I lived in Timonium for a while. Um, okay. That was more like basic suburbia. Now, I mean, I still live in like a suburb, but uh, it feels more connected. I can walk to things now. Walk mm-hmm. to Gilman, walk to Eddie's. So tell me a little bit about kind of your upbringing. I know you have a couple brothers, right? Mm-hmm. Um What's like, what's like your family life like? What's it like growing up with a couple, couple brothers and boys in the family? It, it's kind of hard to explain because it's just like a fact of life for me. I don't understand how people can like grow up as like a single child with like just you and your parents in, in the house. Um, you know, my parents uh, worked for, for a lot of my life. So a lot of my life was my older brother taking care of me. And um, even now when they're back all together, we go on long walks from here to... Um, like near the Homewood campus, JHU, just like talking and arguing and, you know, bickering like brothers do, but mm-hmm. it's wonderful, yeah. That's great. And I spent 14 years at Gilman, so that's definitely a huge part of my... Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you came in in what, pre-K or...? Mm-hmm. No, I came in in kindergarten and they had the pre-first program where you go to pre-first grade before first grade, so... So you're a 14-year-old, 14 14-year 14 man. Yeah, I'm wow. the, uh, the first generation of 14-year men. There's a couple other... In our class. Oh, so are you? Um, are you sad to leave? Are you excited? Like, what? What's kind of your mindset here, right in the middle of the last year at, at Gilman? Uh, it it's hard not to be really excited. I'm really excited to go to college. Um, no matter what college I was going to, I, I think that um, I was just really excited to move on to you know different, more independent academics, more independence mm-hmm. in how I live, but. It's also really hard not to, to feel melancholic walking around, like I said, the beautiful campus or talking to teachers that have been around me for a long time, friends I've had for 12 years now. So Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and your brother's going to be a senior next year, right? Your younger brother. Yes, Jamie yeah. is a senior. Yeah, Jamie. Um, yeah, we we're going up to the Model UN conference in a couple mm-hmm. weeks with him leading the charge, which really? I'm, I'm happy about because he and Zach Minkin and CeeLo Kim do a yeah. great job. I mean, CeeLo mm-hmm. Kim, they do a great job uh, running the show in there. Yeah, but I can I don't understand that that kid Jamie. He does so many things and runs so many things. Hit that in mock trial and student government. It just I don't think I could deal with it. I think I would pass out. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot for yeah, sure. But definitely. Um, and I know you're taking a class uh, at through Hopkins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that class and what that's all yeah. about? So first semester I took a class called Introduction to Proofs, which is, uh, I sort of think about it more um, in general. Most introduction to proof class will be like an introduction to math. 
because uh, when you go study pure mathematics uh, in colleges, it's not about computation and finding, you know, what is the area under the curve or whatever. It's about um, understanding logic and being able to make logical conclusions from certain axioms. And that's sort of what this class taught. It also taught in a very strange way. Um, something that I think about is, you know, uh, when we think about how we digitize music, we turn all these records into um, to our computers. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really mean anything if we have a bunch of ones and zeros that we know is the music, um, or we have like a bunch of waveforms that is the music. What matters is that we can play the music back, you know, on a phone that someone may be listening to this podcast on. And I sort of think of, it, of that how um, how this class is going is that you can scan all these math books to to just like have that information somewhere, but. I think computers have the capabilities to actually understand the theorems for what they mean and understand these connections between them until they, they can, the computers themselves can make these logical steps that we do when we do a math problem. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what this class is about is there's a computer program called Lean and you describe a math problem in there and you can go through each one where you take each logical step and apply theorems and at the end it tells you if your, your theorem is correct. Hmm. And that's sort of how this class uh, this class went, and I think it was a very interesting way. Um, some ways, it's a little disappointing because I wanted to, you know, get a first experience with what it's like to take a math class at a university, and this is a very strange math class. Um, in another way, it's very, um, it's a very good thing that happened because, as far as I can tell, this is the only class like it in the world. There's no other classes that teach, um, you know, proofs and logic through this lens. And so, is it strange because you're utilizing the computer for most of it yeah you're not most problems you're given like here's a theorem and prove it and you have to write it out with your hand you have to give explanations that make sense mm -hmm. this class was just you have to it's, it it feels less like math feels more like playing a video game where you're trying to manipulate hmm. the answer until it says theorem proved um and it feels a little disconnected from mathematics but it's also you know very interesting uh understanding how what we understand in our heads very intuitively has to be um, translated into a computer for it to understand it. There's right. a lot of things that we take for granted in our head that uh, a computer needs ex uh, to be expelled out very explicitly. Yeah, I remember uh, I took computer science my sophomore year in college, and this mm -hmm. is the first time I had any experience. I don't know, have you taken computer science? No, I've done a lot of coding, but I never took like comp sci. Well, I took this class, it's um, called CS50, Computer Science 50, and it's the mm -hmm. basic beginner class. And uh, so it's the, it's the largest course at Harvard, it was when I was there. And it would fill up the entire, really the dining hall, but the lecture hall attached to the dining hall with people. It was, it was yeah. massive. And it got so big that they had to put it online. So you just watch the mm -hmm. lectures and, and do the, the P-set on your own. Um, but the first day, the professor, I forget his name, but he was more of a uh, theatrical, like it was a presentation. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to get you engaged and excited and they would, you know, they'd shoot out t-shirts into the crowd. It was, yeah. it was like a big deal. And uh, he did some exercise where he tried to program a human being to do exactly what you would do with a computer. So it was mm -hmm. like trying to get you to build a sandwich. And you have to tell you every single direction and turn, pick your right hand up. Oh, no, you didn't tell this person to, you know, breathe, right? You need yeah. oxygen to breathe. And then 
pick up the slice of bologna. Well, you didn't tell the per- like all those little intricate yeah. details you take for granted that you actually need to input into a computer to get it to run. Mrs. Barger in the lower school in first grade did that exact demo. Hmm. And the kids told her, spread the peanut butter on the bread. And then she stuck her entire hand into the jar of peanut butter and started spreading her hand yeah. <laughs> all of peanut butter. That's the idea, yeah, is that you need to be really explicit and careful um, when you're talking to computers because, you know, they can do amazing things, but they can't understand some very intuitive things that, that humans do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, like, the future of computing, as I see it with machine learning and deep learning, is about taking a computer and... Um, and making it more human and, you know, building a pseudo brain within a computer that that understands, you know, uh, how to train from data and how to take stimulus and get an answer from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so machine learning, I, I have a sense of what that is, but deep learning, I don't know how, how often I've heard that term before. Yeah, I honestly don't know the difference either. It's um, just teaching a computer how to do things that humans can do. So my understanding of, of machine learning is that we have like a neural network. Um, and what we can do is we can input data and get an answer from it. So let's say we input a bunch of pixels that draws the number seven, and then the computer has to tell us what number was drawn here, and it'll try to guess seven. If it guesses six, we know it's wrong. And what we can do is we can sort of look back at the steps it took to guess that it was six, and then tweak them slowly to say this is what you should have done to get to seven, at least a little bit more. And over thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, uh, of um, examples and data sets of getting it wrong, maybe getting it right, getting rewarded for it, mm-hmm. it'll eventually come to a situation where it will understand um, whether it's a six or a seven or a one or whatever. Hmm. And I think that it's interesting because that's sort of how humans learn is that you see enough ones, you start to understand, see that symbol yourself. You know, Deep so. memory. Yeah. It's it's not, um, you know, what you were doing in your CS50 class, I'm guessing, is very like imperative problem solving. You have some problem, count to 100, and you tell the computer, okay, take number one and add it once, and then keep going to get to 100. That's a very like, explicit way of explaining to the computer how you want it to do something. And it's not the weird world of machine learning where we have a goal and we have you know, examples of, how, uh, of what you're trying to get to, and we tell the computer to figure it out itself. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Um, yeah, and I've been thinking a lot of this recently with the chat GPT emergence. I've been toying around with that thing a little bit. and. Uh, in some ways, I understand how it works, not completely, but I understand that it's just scanning the entire web or a snapshot of the web to derive information and, and put it together in a certain way. But there's an element of creativity and mm-hmm. at least creativity that can fool people. It's not, I would say, organic creativity, but I told it to write. I was trying to show my friend who's a 76ers fan, mm-hmm. and he was going to the Sixers basketball game later that night. I was like, watch this. I'll tell this. ChatGPT to write a sonnet about the starting yeah. five of the 76ers, and it writes a sonnet about the 76ers. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's tough, like what you said about creativity philosophically, like what do we consider creative? Um, if it did just, you know, take examples of sonnets and then take, you know, buzzwords of the 76ers and put them in there, we, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't consider that creative, but that might be similar to how a human would try to attack that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is problems of what's called overtraining, where we run that data through so many times that, like, if I ask it a question, it'll basically just print out word for word what the Wikipedia article had said. Mm-hmm. But I do think that for most things the Chat GPT th- uh, does that I've seen, um, you can give it things that there's no way there's ever been recreated on the internet. You know, uh, write me a, a play that described my second period math class, except everyone is, has a British accent. You know, it will do that. It will do that, and I don't think anyone's ever you know done that game before. Um, 
and that's you know the question is that creative do we consider that that creative if it is just merging everything if it's merging a ton of examples on the internet together to create one thing um, but it does it so fast way faster than a human could ever do it mm -hmm. which is the scary part of it that's a lot yeah that's a scary part of it too and and exactly how much different are we from the computer at that point because if you ask me to do that i'm gonna think back to uh, to what I remember from Shakespeare and try to copy that and then add in buzzwords. It might be very similar to how the computer works. Hmm. So, yeah, it's tough. I asked my class this not too long ago just to see what the response was, but, I, and this was before ChatGPT, but it's even more relevant now with this whole coming in and all the conversations about what are, I mean, a lot of jobs have to do with mm -hmm. like creating emails that a chat GPT could do in 0.5 seconds. It's like yeah. even even assigning essays, I'm thinking to myself, like I teach my classes how to write five paragraph essay and what a topic sentence is and how to integrate a quotation and defend a mm -hmm. thesis statement. And these things do it so fast that it just makes you think, well, like what, why teach that to someone if a computer can do it almost? Mm -hmm. And um, so I asked my class the other day, I was like, if you guys read a beautiful poem or a beautiful short story and you found out later that a computer had written it, how would you feel about it? And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Uh, I think in, in the retrospect, it would make me um, like it less. I think that uh, like the enjoyment that I get a lot from poetry is imagining you know, how a human expresses those thoughts in a lot of ways. And I think that just the knowledge that it was a... Um, that uh, there was a computer would ruin that a little bit for me. Um, it was interesting. If you, that if you never told me, I think I probably would keep going like in the poem the same way. Right, because you didn't know. Um, I think some of my students in the, in the class said, I'd be amazed and I'd be so impressed and I think it's super cool, which I'm not going to lie. Like I've seen some of the artificial intelligence art on Twitter, of yeah. just paintings and pieces of art that the computer generates. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, I am floored by it, but there is a sense that it's like a human didn't do that, so I'm not as impressed by it, by it but I am impressed and confused about how computers can make that. Mm -hmm. Something you're talking about with, um, you know, replacing jobs, I think is interesting, is that, you know, we were, um, a lot of people were worried about their jobs being misplaced of, you know, self-driving cars might take over trucking or right. even like the, the art stuff. And I think there was... A sense for like computer scientists that they were like felt really um you know comfortable that like oh we're the ones creating this stuff we'll be okay mm -hmm. and then chat gpt comes out and you, i can tell Jack, chat gpt to oh write a program to analyze this data for me and it will write it for me hmm. and you know i think that realizing that even the stuff that goes into chat gpt can be less um can be more uh procedural and more replicable than we thought too. So there's a lot of like areas that aren't expected that it can, can take over. One thing that I think there is still room for is that uh, a downside in my eyes and why I don't know if I will go into machine learning because this is something that I don't love is that when I feed that data to that neural network and it slowly learns how to get those answers over time, I don't really know why. Um, there's no like, it never sits down and explains to me like, oh, it looked at this part of the, uh, the picture to figure out that that was a three and not a four. Um, and I think that over time, that will be more and more of uh, like the, the human's part in the process is that uh, it can give us answers, but we don't know why and we want to figure out why. And that'll be like the job of, of humans to come in and try to interpret the data and figure that out.
mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think you'll want to take some computer science classes next year? Definitely. I think yeah. that um, at, at U Chicago, there's a lot of cross-listing between the math department and the computer science department. And uh, if I can get enough of those like credits to double count, I might go for, for a double major. Because it's really that um, computers, the type of math that I really like, um, called like discrete math, where when you're in calculus, you deal with these smooth functions, you deal with limits where you can get infinitely close to zero without quite being there and such. Um, I, that's cool, but I like thinking about whole numbers, one, two, three, four, the natural numbers, and that's far closer to how a computer thinks. If you look into the hardware of a computer, it sees data as either a one or a zero. It doesn't really think about gradients between one and zero, at least for classical, like non-quantum computers, that gets weird. But, um, and that, uh, there's a lot of interesting math to, to apply there. And I, I think I see theoretical computer science of like thinking about how algorithms can be created as, as a subfield of math that I'm very interested in. And there's a, a classic going called combinatorics, um, which is taught by Ms. Vasquez. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am, me and Kate Schnee from RPCS are the only two students in that class. <laughs> I want to take a moment to shout out that class. I think that every junior who is interested in computer science or math should sign up for that class because it's a wonderful experience. With so what do you guys do in a two-person class? Uh, uh, we just really do problems. Like she come, We come in and we've read the chapter and she expects us to have understood the material to some degree and then she gives us problems to do. Hmm. And then she has problem sets where she says do six problems from the, the chapter and come in and we'll talk about those problems um, after you finish them. Hmm. And it's just a very uh, a personalized way of learning where, you know, here's the funny thing that happened recently is that I was in English class and he was creating groups for a film project where he said, uh, everyone send me two people that you want to work with and one person you'd rather not work with. And I was thinking like, oh, how would you do that in a computer? Like, how would you um, make a computer figure out the best grouping such that everyone's the most happy with all the people they want to be and not with people they don't want to be? Um, and I just emailed with Vasquez, like, do you think, how would you do this? And it had a lot to do with what was happening in our class. Um, we're doing stuff called graph theory, which is dealing with these objects where you think about a bunch of points on a graph, maybe students, and then a bunch of edges that connect these people, like, oh, this student Jeffrey wants to be with student James or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, okay, we'll try that. And I went in the class the next day and we just talked about that problem all class. Mm. And then the work that we're doing in the future is like just building this algorithm. And we're actually going to give it to Mr. Hastings to use. Wow. Later in class. so That's cool. But that sort of like personalized, it's very exciting because I think that um, in college you get opportunities to do that. If you get really deep into your major, you know, if I take enough math classes, I'll be able to go to these seminar classes where I can direct and read and do what I want to do um, and learn what I want to learn. And then the professor will guide me in some ways. But that kind of happens at the end of your undergraduate career. And I'm sort of getting a, a mini chance to do that in high school already. I love that. I mean, I was never a huge math person because I think when I was in high school, I just didn't, I didn't see where it would take me or why I should be interested in it. I, I don't know. Maybe it was teachers I had or just naturally I was way more attracted to English. Like I always loved English. But the cool thing I think is, is using math and using equations to generate real world solutions. And maybe that's what I didn't see when I was in high school. But um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't feel that, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't... Uh, be just um, would regret that if I were you, because for me, I see it the very opposite way. Um, I really like math for the problems, and I enjoy the problems. And there's a, there's a quote by this uh, uh, this guy Cornell Stephen Strogatz, who I love, and he says that um, you know, as as an applied mathematician, he's supposed to talk about all the amazing benefits for the real world and medicine and all that. But 
he really sees the real world as a motivation for fun math problems. Mm-hmm. That's how I, I, I thought that, you know, uh, truly, I love Mr. Hastings. I don't think I would be, um, I'm not doing all this work for like the, the, um, the humanitarian effort to make sure that he can organize his class better. I'm doing it because I really like the problem. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense. That I mean, makes sense. Some people are motivated by, um, you know, the application and the ways you can, uh, you know, build real world things out of it. But I, I love it because the real world can everywhere around me. There's some just fun the process of solving yeah. equations. Yeah. Well, my friend was um, my friend Lauren G, who I went to college with. I, I went on a walk with her over uh, Thanksgiving break or the holiday break and uh she lives out in san francisco and she has a boyfriend who I actually have known since my freshman year of college and that's what's kind of cool we could talk about that too is how a lot of people that you'll meet next year you'll be friends with for a while it's it's mm-hmm. the best part of freshman year i think it's because it's all new people and everyone you sit down with on a given day could be people you know for the rest of your life which i love about freshman year um but this guy is into machine learning and he does all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was telling me how he gifted her for Christmas a bot that will help her send out all of her emails that she needs to do, sort of like chat GPT, but specifically tailored to her job. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was fascinating, you know, like yeah, a real wonderful. world application of machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really cool. But yeah, that's, that's, that's the practical mm-hmm. ways that math and, machine learning and all this is used but um mm-hmm. for is, me that that's not what i'm interested in but i i understand that uh you know the, the government's giving out grants for this research not because they want to let jeffrey play with some puzzles it's like <laughs> they, they want something out of it right yeah so when you i guess want to have fun with equations do you just go online to find equations or like what is your process and your i guess it's your hobby too like if you're mm-hmm. sitting around on saturday how do you entertain yourself with math uh, textbooks are, are fun in my eyes. Um, uh, the, the textbooks for this common course class we're doing, which is like what the class is based on, I, I bring that most places in my backpack. It's always there because I can usually go there and, and there's fun problems in the back of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think YouTube is a really nice resource. There's a couple people. Um, 3 Blue, 1 Brown is one pretty popular YouTube channel that does math explanations, and those are videos I would recommend to anyone. Um, math or not, because even if you don't, you know, intrinsically love the math, like the animations are beautiful and what he creates out of it is, is amazing. There are more less-known tra- channels, like a guy named Michael Penn, um, who just sits at a blackboard and does number theory problems. That guy's really fun. This guy <laughs> named Black Pen Red Pen, who's just a, another guy who sits at a board and does problems. I've that heard guy. that. Yep. He'll he'll post a, a video every year that's like, oh, ten hours of integrals. We're just gonna sit and do. <laughs> a godly amount of math uh, on a board so a lot of times it's youtube but um textbooks are, if you can get your hand on a nice textbook that's what I, like to do too, yeah. <laughs> I love that i love that uh so do you see yourself being a professor someday or where do you f- I, n- I know it's a hard question because you're mm-hmm. just entering college but what would be the dream for you i think that that that's that's the the dream for me right now um you know very tentative on whether there's a lot of um, things that you you sacrifice by going for that route in terms of like money and job security, but right now in my life it feels like it's a combination of things that I really really love, where you can um, in, engage in a really deep level on new problems that no one's ever thought before, while also have um, being able to teach other people and, and uh, build those relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, 
while also like engaging in the community that is your university and your department. Um, I think that's, yeah, that, that, that's my dream right now, I think. Um, I'm doing my senior encounter with my professor at Hopkins, um, and I'm gonna get a better idea from there on what he, his life is like. He's a, he's a postdoc, so it's a bit different. He's not like a full tenure, but. Do you have to go to Hopkins for that class, or is it virtual? I, I leave lunch uh, three days a week wow. when it's in session. Not right now. Um, actually, yeah, technically, if, if, if class was in session right now at Hopkins, I would not be here. I would be over there right now. Huh. But um, that class ended, and I'm waiting till the end of the month to start a linear algebra over there. What was that like, just going leaving campus and going to university? Uh, it's it's kind of cool in some ways. You feel in, in, independent, um, and, you know... You get a taste of what college is like. Yeah, it's, it's not like I'm going and taking class with a bunch of high schoolers. Um, there were six people in my class, and all other five of them were undergraduates. It wasn't even freshmen. I think they were mostly juniors and seniors. So um, you really get a feeling of what a real college class is like, especially at a, at a school that is not known for being easy. Um, right, yeah. Uh, I would say in some ways it's definitely not... Fr like, in terms of people... Going into the senior year and thinking about trying for, the, for this program, I would not recommend it for anyone except for people who like math for the sake of math because it's a very legitimate commitment. Um, you know, Hopkins is a very tough school on top of the fact that they expect that you take like five classes. So if you're taking six classes and one of those Hopkins class, that's more than they would even expect of you. Um, and you get in some ways disconnected from the, from the Gilman community mm -hmm. um, in a way that is... Uh, I don't like. For a lot of people, it probably sounds like a dream to skip assembly a lot, but I, I do miss, you know, being up to date on everything that everyone's doing. Um, hmm. I usually, when I'm here, I go to the Science Help Center and I, you know, tutor kids in physics, and I like that a lot. And I just haven't had nearly enough time to do that this year, so. Makes sense. There's, there's, there's pros and cons. I would only consider it if you really like math for the sake of math. That's yeah. what I tell people. What would your advice be for? juniors so I teach juniors and I'm sure the college application process is coming up for them I I, I guess pre preliminarily like applications or just thinking about college and tours I guess in the spring semester and over the summer um, for someone who just got out of the college process and is all settled and knows where you're going if you could go back to this time junior year what would you tell everyone I would say the most important thing is to like get your priorities straight and have like a really serious conversation with yourself about what it is you want out of out of college because once you like list down like these are the really really important things for me you'll find that most universities fulfill those requirements um, there's a lot of, like stress that comes about it but I think that for me like being able to visualize my like an entire um, you know experience at university um, that you know, was wonderful at even my safety schools. That was very important for me. You know, I said that I wanted to uh, take difficult classes. I wanted opportunities to try undergraduate research. Um, and those are like the deal breakers for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, along with like social stuff, but I think that any college is going to have people that you're going to have great time with mm -hmm. um, pretty much no matter what. Uh, and I found that there are so many schools. It's not just the top 20 schools that that fulfill those criteria. Now, what are really the main stressors in this process? And I guess what's a good way for students to handle those stress stressors? Mm -hmm. So I think that the biggest stressor is something that I think the, what I was just talking about the priorities is the feeling that if you don't get in, then you've like 
um, set yourself up for a bad time in a lot of ways. Um, I think that's the biggest thing is just that this feeling of, you know, putting all this weight onto college and, you know, feeling like if that doesn't work out for you, then you're going to be in, you know, your life is going to be like terrible or something. And it's just not true. And I think that's an enormous pressure to get off. Mm-hmm. Another thing is just getting used to writing essays. Um, in my junior year, I started writing college essays. Um, in your class, but even also because uh, you assigned, you know, some personal essays, but also before that even. And I don't think I used a single one that I wrote before my senior year, but I got very used to just writing and talking about my life. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, in terms of the work, that's where a lot of the, the college stuff comes around. Yeah, I don't realize that when I teach personal essay writing, but for a lot of students, that's the first time you've really ever written about yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think it is important for, I guess, priming you for the next year or at least thinking about yourself a little bit more and what you want and yeah. what your goals are and if you really like want to make sure you're super set you it's probably best to just like start keeping a journal and writing every night i started doing that last week and hmm. you know it's going well uh that's probably like the the best thing to get practice about like writing about your life and understanding yourself and putting that into words um i like that which is where a lot of like the stress comes from and i'll, I'll be honest i was re- re- uh, rewarded for some very bad behavior on the winter break because I had a lot of essays to write in a very short period of time if I didn't get into school. Huh. And that's a lot of where the stress came for me um, in a work, and I definitely would not. E- even So if you didn't get into Chicago, you would have had a lot I had of stuff. a huge nine-day turnaround there because they were also released really late. Yeah. Um, and even knowing that I got in, I wish that I had written those essays because that winter break was very stressful, um, even, you know, I, I, like, if I had written those, knowing now that, that I got in, I still would have written those essays, because it made my entire break a lot worse before I got in, mm. so, hmm. just stay on top of your stuff, and, like, be really honest about what, like, your expectations, and where you go, you think you're going to go in life. Did, and, you, did you visit a lot of schools? No, no. not really. Uh, no, not really, I didn't really visit many schools, but that's, that, that's a me thing, I think a lot of people, um, I talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky that I'm, I'm going to stay on a beautiful campus, but that wasn't really high on my priorities list. Um, I would have taken a school with better academics immediately over a school that was prettier, but um, I think there are a lot of people that do have those priorities. Um, for me, it just didn't feel like walking around a campus really gave me much of an impression of what the university was like. Hmm. So pretty soon I noticed that, like... What do you think does? Going on the website and or talking to people that go there already? Talking to people that go there already, going on the on the website, um, trying to it, it, honestly, it's, it's just very very tough. But um, there are resources online that talk about um, that sort of thing. I, I would you know look at the departments I care about and read about what they're doing in their in their research, what their focus is. Um, I would read about how they deal with student life. Um, professors. Yeah, professors definitely. Um, you can email professors honestly, like. Uh, you know, try to be respectful and understand if they don't get back to you. But, I mean, these emails are public. You can you can send a professor an email and ask them questions. You can find anyone's name on mm-hmm. online. Yeah, I, I did that a couple times. Yeah, and I got emails back, and they were you know wonderful people. Right. Yeah, that's smart. Gives you a sense of who you're going to be mm-hmm. working with or or in their class next year. Yeah, and a lot of schools like post things on YouTube lectures and stuff. I watched a lot of lectures from U Chicago going in, and that made me. You know, excited to be like, wow, these are the people that are there. I'm very excited to to meet these people. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. So, 
what questions you had a oh, had a little boy. book of questions. I'm curious about this little black book that you have. Everyone knows that I'm the number one Path to Follow podcast <laughs> fan, so I thought it would take a minute to to ask you some questions about cool. about the Path to Follow podcast. Yeah. So, do you have a favorite episode? And if you don't want to choose favorites, just one that you come back to and think about a lot. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite episode. They've all been so different. Mm-hmm. I. I think the first episode was awesome with Brian Ledyard because mm-hmm. I was just, I didn't know what I was doing. We were getting our feet wet here. I just asked Cesare if he wanted to start a podcast. It was middle of COVID really. And there wasn't much going on at, at school. So that's definitely one of my favorite ones. Um, the most viewed one is with a professor at University of Pennsylvania named Jonathan Zimmerman, mm-hmm. who was my professor. I have a great relationship with him. And he wrote a book about free speech that I was curious about because um, he has great opinions and opinions that are not always uh, agreed with widely, but ones I find fascinating. So he was a, he, he's a lively character, and it was fun mm-hmm. talking to him over Zoom. I don't love the Zoom podcast because it's a little bit harder. You can't feel the person's energy like you can yeah. in person. I have to agree with you on that one, that Zoom podcasts were – a bit of a turnoff for me when I would try to. I think you can also tell the audio is a bit different too. Yeah, yeah, and there's some lag sometimes. Yeah. It's just the way it is. But um, I'm trying to think who else. It was cool talking to Coach Harbaugh a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, but really, the teachers and the coaches and the faculty members and the staff members at Gilman. I mean. I love talking to the students. I love talking to alums that come back, but it's cool to hear pretty similar answers about what Gilman means to people, and that's mm-hmm. what I've I've liked. I've liked just kind of getting into the minds of all of the members of the community here. Mm-hmm. So, my favorite podcast is Mr. Slutkin. By yeah. Far. Just oh yeah. Talking about Lincoln for like forty minutes was wonderful. It's amazing. I that was right? a great podcast. And I didn't really know him that well when I had him on there because we had just started sharing an office together and he's got a statue of Lincoln and he's reading Lincoln all the time and I have a sense that he that he loves this guy but when he started quoting every speech I didn't yeah. I, I didn't know what to do with it so I was like wow that's a lot to digest that's amazing yeah. that you memorized that out of nowhere starts quoting the eulogy for Henry Clay yeah it was wonderful yeah it was cool it was I, cool I learned a lot I haven't talked to him much so you might be surprised to hear this but like I was listening to him, I was like dang I'm really sad I never you know, he came after I was like a sophomore. I never got to take a class from this guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, he he has professor vibes. Yes, you know, he he yeah. knows his stuff very very well. It's impressive. Um, do you have a favorite episode? That Mr. Slucken. Slucken. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was talking about. Oh, great. I also like Mr. Gulan's episode. Yeah, a bit. Yeah, that was a good one. That was a good one. Cool. Okay. So, so, do, so do you listen to them or do you watch them? I listen to them. Yeah. Because I I just listen to a lot of podcasts. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I watched the one with uh, Mr. White. That was a good one. Yeah. Because I remember you, uh, I emailed you, like, you need to get Mr. White on the podcast. And then you emailed me the YouTube link before anything else. So I clicked that and watched it immediately. Do you have any recommendations of guests that we have not had on that we should that we should get on? Okay. Um, I So one thing is I, I like it when you bring on non-Gilman people too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how like other people who listen to podcasts feel about it, but... I think it's really interesting to hear from outside the community too. Mm-hmm. Um, think about teachers that I like. I think Mr. Schloeder from the lower school, right. a wonderful person. Need to get him on. Uh, Mr. Downs from the middle school mm-hmm. teaches history. You mm-hmm. should get him on. Um, you need to get Miss Vasquez on for sure. Yeah, she is the reason I was on this. I, I mentioned that I wanted to be on the podcast, and 
that is in true. Torque's class, and then she built an entire harassment campaign to uh, <laughs> to talk to you any and everywhere uh, to get me on the podcast. So I definitely need to to say that you need to get her on. Yeah, mm-hmm. love that. Great, we will. We will. Yes, got some work to do. We're on episode 101 yes. right here. So I do like that on that number too. Yeah, good. Okay. This is a question. So you are not like you didn't graduate from Gilman, and you came here from the Penfellow program, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What like about Gilman made you just like set up shop? Because <laughs> like when I came into Gilman, I was like, this guy has to have been like a Gilman alum whose like family has been to Gilman for six generations. The way that he like created a whole podcast about the place, right? What What do you think about here? Is just like like that enticing for you? That's a good question. Uh, the first time I came here, and I was really shooting for boarding schools surprisingly which now i'm like why would i work at a boarding school when i'm in my mid-20s you know Mm -hmm. um because it's so removed from cities and people and interactions i did an internship at choate rosemary hall in connecticut i loved teaching and i loved just the atmosphere of an independent school so that's what i wanted i wanted something like choate because that was just an incredible experience for me. And I found out about the Penn Fellowship. That was a great opportunity, two years, master's degree in education. But when I first came to Gilman, I had always known about Gilman through lacrosse. Like I played with guys that went to Gilman. It's got a great reputation in the lacrosse world. It's like, this is the Mecca for lacrosse here. And so that enticed me, but I didn't really care that much about lacrosse, to be honest. I mean, I was kind of burn out after four years of college lacrosse. I'd love to, you know, help out with lacrosse. I love giving lessons to kids. But um, I think what really did it was the combination of all these things together. I could teach English. I could do a master's degree. I could coach some lacrosse. And also I was walking the hallways and I saw all the artwork hanging up. And art has always been something that I love. And the talent of Gilman artists, you know, and just seeing all the paintings on the hallway. I was like, this place, like, really appreciates art and painting and you know and then i met carl Connolly, and i was like wow i like the well-roundedness of gilman Mm -hmm. and that was really the 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 reason that i wanted to come here is the combination of all those things Mm -hmm. that's a good question great well the the question was more once you got here what made you like like you're like a gilman man now that's how i see you okay (laughs) but you you did not go here for school and it's just such a like when i heard that that it was really a shock for me like what do you think made you so attached once you got here? I think just that, the combination of everything. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing wrong in those first two years. I had no complaints. Mm-hmm. You know, I was kind of, I wasn't huge on the city. I was like, oh, Baltimore, like there are different places I could live, you know, but now I love it. There's nothing to really gripe about. I have no qualms. Okay. So there would be no reason for me to, to really leave, you know, mm-hmm. if I can do all these different things. I could come into the podcast studio coach lacrosse I could go into the art room and paint like it's, it's very rare that you have all these different places in your back pocket almost in your backyard mm-hmm. okay so you have your guests bring a book for each podcast if you had to bring a book what would it be oh that's a really good question wow I like that um well I brought a book today that you actually gave me that one selected count. poems by Gwendolyn Brooke Brent, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks because I've really been enjoying reading mm-hmm. I always have trouble with the question, like, what's your favorite book? Because that's what people ask me all the time as an English teacher, an English major, what's your yeah. favorite book? And I usually fall back on the book that I'm reading because yeah. I don't really have a favorite book. 
I like whatever is in my hands at a certain time. And mm-hmm. there are books that I return to a lot. Um, the books that I teach, The Great Gatsby, for one, it's the book I've read the most. Mm-hmm. I've read that like 15 times or something crazy. Do you still enjoy it or is it a little bit? I know? still enjoy it. I still notice things about it that I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. ever before. And that's why I like teaching it is people point things out to me that I'd never seen before. But I think I would bring The Scarlet Letter because mm-hmm. it's my favorite book of all time. I read it when I was a sophomore in high school. I think it's an incredible story, but there's a lot of real life application to it and a lot to consider in 2023. Um, in terms of forgiveness, grace, I think cancel culture is an interesting concept and idea mm-hmm. to talk about today because I have Twitter and I see a lot of that going on in the world. And yeah. I think that story is a story about cancel culture in some ways. So um, that, that's a big like conversation at Chicago right now because they sort of pay like, uh, made a reputation for being a very pro-free speech school. Um, uh, you know, originally it was about McCarthyism, and there's like a, it was a really famous uh, Chica- uh, walk of Chicago students to the town hall to, to protest these, um, these anti-free speech laws. Um, but that's feeling like, I think for a lot of people, that's feeling more and more outdated these days um, hmm. as like everything's moving in that direction. Yeah. Which is interesting, I think. It's very interesting. I mean, it's a... Uh... It's an important conversation to have in, in the world today, and especially with my students. So I didn't teach Scarlet Letter this year, but I'm going to next year because I think that was a mistake. You're missing it right now. For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, how about you? What book did you bring in? What is this? I brought in Watchmen. This is a, um, it's a, it's a graphic novel by Alan Moore. Um, it's like, uh, oh, yeah, I, I didn't know I have to lift it up to the camera. There you not. go. There you go. It's a beautiful cover. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's sort of, I feel like all the time now there's like a, a new, you know, superheroes have blown up and there's a new superhero thing every week. It's like, oh, it's the it's the dark take on superheroes. Oh, here's a superhero, but everyone's kind of mean stuff. Um, I, I think it's a little boring now, but this is sort of like the original, the guy who did it first. Um, and sort of just, you know, reckoning with, we have all these, um, you know, superhero stories, people like Batman and... Superman and um, how these people actually act in the real world. If you took someone like Batman who, you know, dressed up at night and, and, and fought crime, he probably wouldn't be, you know, some playboy billionaire. He's more akin to like a, you know, in this book, it's someone who walks around the street and uh, points, you know, holds a sign that says the end is nigh. Or if you have a Superman type character who's like all powerful. Uh, he probably would have a really hard time relating with humanity, and mm-hmm. that's they have a character like that in this book. Um, I was talking with Cesare before the podcast. Very interestingly, um, in in the movie of Watchmen, the guy who plays Doctor Manhattan is actually, or the the body double from Manhattan who does the physique because he's like a blue guy who floats around and he's naked, and it's very like famous imagery. Hmm. That's actually a Gilman alum, apparently. Oh yeah, a guy named Greg Plitt, I think. Hmm. Um, he he died somewhere recently, but. Apparently, it's just such a coincidence I brought it in. And in wow. the movie, it's, it's a Gilman guy. I did not know that. And that movie didn't come out too, too long ago, right? I want to say it was early 2010s. Okay. So, yeah, not too long ago. I think it's a fine movie. I don't think it quite is as good as the book. Um, but the thing I like most about the book is it sort of, like, deconstructs this idea of, like, you have a lot of these, these movies and superheroes where it's, like, these singular, um, singular like, super beings who are... Uh, fighting for their philosophy on the world and like these 
specific people, what they do is like what um, determines how the world moves forward uh, and their like personal quirks and philosophies. And I think it sort of like critiques that of like, um, you know, who are these people to to make these huge decisions over, over the world and uh, exploring, even if there's good intentions, where can they go wrong? Um, hmm. And really d- diving into the f- like philosophy of each character, people who are extremely utilitarian and how they are uh, try to solve the world's ills. Um, people who are very, you know, do, do not believe that the ends justify the means that you need to, you know, be right in, in each step of the way. Um, hmm. And do you like the graphic novel? I guess construction of this yeah. genre. Uh, yeah, I, I do like this. It's, it's a very wordy graphic novel. At the end of the day, a lot of um, them have this is heavier on the text, and between each chapter, they have little um, like world building interludes. There's um, they'll have like a full newspaper um, of it's set in the '60s. Like they'll have a full newspaper of you know what's happening in Vietnam to like build out the world, or they'll have hmm. uh, in between they'll have a little blurb of you know. Uh, an encyclopedia entry about owls or something like that, and just like little things to to make you feel like you're um, you're living in in this world of uh, of Watchmen. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I need to get into graphic novels a little mm-hmm. bit more. I know Persepolis is the kind of the big one that you read in school, mm-hmm. which I've read. But I was reading Mouse, which is another one, which is yeah, which is fascinating. That. Yeah, great one. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you for bringing that in. Mm-hmm. Other questions? I do have, I think, two more questions. <laughs> Um, so is there I'm sure you get this but is there anyone you still want to have on the podcast uh, you can answer this Gilman, non-Gilman realistic, unrealistic however you want anyone that I still want to have on that I haven't yet mm-hmm. um, well I've been trying to get Bart Griffith on I don't know if you knew Mr. Griffith he was at Gilman I think I'm actually family friends with him Yeah, a couple of years ago and he left and he's the head of school at Shadyside Academy mm-hmm. in uh, Pittsburgh so we've been trying to get him on I love that guy. He's a big reason that I came to Gilman because of my relationship with him right from the bat. Um, So I think it'll be cool to talk to him again. Um, Anyone else I want to get on? I had Mr. Smythe on a couple days ago for episode 100, Mm -hmm. and I want to talk to some more heads of schools and some administrators at different schools around the country, which... We're going to have to record on Zoom, but I think it will still be interesting to get some perspectives of other schools and what other schools are doing and some of the problems and things that are going on in their schools that they're working on. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's really where I'm at right now. I'm just kind of one at a time. But I understand that if you did have the power to raise someone from the dead, you probably wouldn't use it to film a podcast. But if you could... uh, Interview anyone who's not alive anymore. Who would oh be? wow! Anyone and anyone. That's why I said unrealistic. You can. Mm, that's such a good question. Sky's the limit. Man, you came prepared. Um, let's see. I'd love to. I mean, keeping it Gilman centric for right now because there are so many people outside of Gilman just generally that I'd love to talk to. But Gilman, I would love to talk to people that were here in the early days of the school. You know, mm-hmm. when it first started. Um, but more broadly speaking, I would love to talk to, mm, that's so good. If you don't have an answer, that's fine. Yeah. But it bugs me because it's, it's almost like the, what's your favorite book question? You yeah. know, it's like, 
a million books pop into my head and I'm like, mm-hmm. and I just don't know what to say. But can I say who I thought you were gonna say? Who's that? Mr. Finney. Mr. Finney. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Path to follow. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Him for sure. I'd love to talk to him. And get to know him because all you really know about him is is like the stories and the legends mm-hmm. and how everyone I've ever talked to has said great things about that guy. And there are very few people in the world where that's the case. You know, it's always like there's always some story that it's, it's not just people who knew him say is great. It feels like anybody who went here at the time knew him also. Yeah. Like anybody who was in proximity to him has a story about him, not just, you know, people who, you know, want to step out and say there's a good story. Like I asked my dad and he was like, oh, yeah, there's this story mm-hmm. about Eddie Finney. Everyone yeah. knows him and everyone has good things to say about yeah. him. And I think when you watch that documentary, Path to Follow, the, the, the original, uh, you get that sense, too, you know, that he really was a man of his word and person who talked mm-hmm. about integrity, but also lived uh, lived integrity. And I just think that's so cool that. And, and so rare, you know. My favorite story about him was a middle school teacher. I don't remember who it was, but they played a, played a prank on him by putting a piece of trash outside with a string attached. And they dragged it around, like, like halfway around campus, pulling him along. And he followed it the whole way. Because, I mean, that's what, that's, that's what he does is he, you know, tries to make the world a better place. First class citizen picks up trash. Citizen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great question. And, yeah, I, Mr. Finney is a good one. One last question about the future of the podcast. Where do you see the podcast going? If if you could change it, uh, move it in any other direction, what would it be? Do you see an end to the podcast in any way, or do you just plan on going on the same way you've been going? Hmm. I don't know. I, I really take it uh, week by week almost, because I just like mm-hmm. talking to people and uh, learning more. I'm just, that's probably why I'm a teacher and why I'm at Gilman, back to your original question, is that I'm very curious always have been and I just like learning a lot mm-hmm. so talking to people fills that void for me and well a lot of things do but specifically talking to people on a deep level like not just conversation not small talk but mm-hmm. actually diving into the details of your life a little bit more intricately uh, I, I like that so I just really think a guest at a time a week at a time but mm-hmm. future of the podcast I I think it'd be cool to have like an independent school type podcast because you can learn so much about teachers and coaches and stories and administrators. And mm-hmm. I think that's why it'll be cool to talk to different heads of school from around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to have like the independent school podcast where if you want to learn about the greatest teachers at independent schools, you go on to the episode with, you know, Mr. So-and-so from Andover or Mr. So-and-so from uh, you know, Roland Park sure. or Miss Vasquez for Gilman or whoever. Right? The most important person to bring on the podcast is always Miss Vasquez. Yeah, right? Um, I think that'd be really cool, like it, like yeah. the independent school podcast, but I love keeping it Gilman-centric, but also expanding outside of Gilman. Yeah, I think that a lot of what's great about the podcast is that, you know, you got anyone can get like a really good sense of what Gilman is like through even just a couple episodes of this, but... There's also a risk, I think, where if you're drawing just from Gilman, you know, you're not talking about new things eventually. Um, and if you want to have deep conversations, you know, it's important to expand your horizons and bring new ideas into the community. So that that's why I really like when you bring on um, people from other places. I really like the one with Michael Katz, for instance, and talking about hmm. uh, crime and punishment and the 
that school that he was teaching at where you you know immersion to other languages yeah thank wonderful you wonderful podcast thank you. yeah I like how you're such a big fan of the podcast. Because I'm the number I, one fan. I, that's I, what I said. I, I believe that. I think that's very true because I even talked to my, you know, my dad. He sits at home and he, he watches mm-hmm. some of them. He's like, I could make it through like 20 minutes of that one and then something more entertaining, yep. you know, because it is, uh, it's a lot of conversation about the deep dive into the person, which I don't know. Some people don't love podcast episodes, but I like that you stay on it. So mm-hmm. I appreciate your, your time. Thank you. Um, Anything that you would recommend for the podcast, just from your vantage point in terms of bettering it, growing it, making it more interesting to listen to? Um, hmm. I'm not sure. I think that uh, I do like the idea of drawing from uh, other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that podcasts are nice because, especially an interviewer like, uh, you know, there's different people with different types of podcasts, but you're very much an interviewer that lets the guest speak and, you know, say what they need to say. And I think that. The more you can get people who are very, um, who are experts in something and very, um, you know, know a lot about something and can dive deep, I think that's a, a huge positive. Um, right. And I think that those, the podcasts I like the most are usually those, um, you know, Mr. Slotkin can talk a lot about Lincoln. Yeah. And you get really get into that. Uh, Mr. Guline talks a lot about his experience as a teacher, and I would say he's an, he's an expert in that. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Katz talking about translation and, and, and Russian, like, um, no matter what the, the, the subject is I think people who are very interested and very passionate and very knowledgeable is um, what I think is, is best to, to bring on in my opinion um, that's I a good point you've done a good job good job of that but uh, yeah that would be my focus if I were in your position that's a really good point because that's that's partly why I was asking you about like three things that you feel like you could talk a lot about because mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like you know Pat the follower kind of meandering through the life's journey which is great and that's kind of the blueprint of the podcast, but I think starting with specific things that you are really passionate about, that you love talking about, like you, Chicago, like you, yeah. get, you get excited visibly when <laughs> I brought that up at the at the beginning, yes. and I think that's important, not only for making you feel comfortable at the beginning of the episode, because mm-hmm. it's kind of nerve wracking if you've never put the headphones on and yeah. done a podcast before. Get used to hearing your own breathing every two seconds, right? Very- but a little you, strange experience, yeah. Then you hear something that you are gets you excited, and you mm-hmm. forget all you get, about you get that. Tunnel vision. Nothing else matters, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I also think it helps differentiate. Like if if all these podcasts were about yeah, talking definitely. about Gilman School, which a lot of them are, but I think mm-hmm. it helps uh, diversify the conversational topic a little bit. Yeah, and then that's interesting too is that you know you bring all, all these different people. You know, when you bring on like a, um, it's strange, but when you bring off bring on a diverse group of people with diverse interests and, and things to say, the commonalities are then more important. Because you know, if you bring on only Gilman people and they always talk about Gilman, you know, whatever. But if you bring on people from all different walks of life and they all have like some theme of integrity or honor or something like that, mm-hmm. then that means something more. I think at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Jeffrey, we're getting to the end here. Anything else that we didn't get to today that you want to talk about? I, I'm comfortable with what I, we talked about today. I do want to read one poem for you about Chicago, and I just kind of, you know, I put put together a bunch on here. Gwendolyn Brooks, who's a favorite because of this book that you gave me, and I've been really enjoying yeah. that. Um, we can read the one about Chicago, or we can read the learned astronomer. Oh, I like the, I like the astronomer. All right, let's do that one. Fans of Breaking Bad will will recognize this poem, too. Yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) All right, so I'll read this one. It's called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. 
Walt Whitman. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures, were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. That's a great one. It's beautiful. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of you because, uh, you know, you've got this deep fascination with math and equations mm -hmm. and, you know, carrying the textbook yeah. around just because of the love of the game, you know, mm -hmm. but also the things that math and science can explain and yeah. uh, things that you still marvel at and in nature or, you know, mystically that can move you outside of things that are explainable or, you know, you can research or look up in a on a computer or in a textbook. And what I love about this poem is that um, it, it kind of shows how, like, if you are really interested in something, it doesn't always mean that you have to, you know, dive into the most technical level of it. Um, you know, if you're really into to neurobiology or something, you don't need to go get a degree in neuroscience to, um, you know, understand some more interesting stuff. Because in a lot of ways, when you go too deep, you start to hyper-specialize um, mm -hmm. and you start to lose the, the big picture. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the, just taking a step back is, you know, for some people probably where more of the enjoyment comes from and where you'll, like, uh, have a better time in your life, I think. And that's a lot of, like, what I was talking about really with the liberal arts education is that, you know, pigeoning, pigeonholing yourself into one thing is not going to be a, a good way to, you know, develop as a, as a student but also just live a, a fulfilling life. Yeah. And to gain like a broad appreciation for things. And then mm -hmm. you can always dive into a specific when yeah. you go professional in something. But yeah. but just in general, I, I like this poem because it gives you a good perspective on yeah. just the world. All right, Jeffrey, thank you so much for, for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. Great episode. Mm -hmm.